Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Elizabeth Wheel of Seed Focus Scribble Ventures. Elizabeth and her partners Annie and Kevin raised an oversubscribed fund one all during the COVID pandemic. Before starting the firm, she previously invested as an angel into companies such as Postmates, SpaceX, Main Street, Clubhouse, and Figma. In addition to being a prolific angel, Elizabeth also worked at 137 Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, and was at Twitter during its early days. During the show, we dove deep into how she wears multiple hats as a fund manager, her thoughts on collaborative partnerships, and why network strength is such a key differentiator for them. I'm excited to bring you our conversation. Without any further ado, let's get into it now. This week of Venture Unlock is brought to you by Passer. Raising a fund is hard enough without the additional friction of the complex subscription agreement process that makes it so difficult for investors to easily sign up. Enter Passer, which automates the fund closing process. It takes any subscription agreement and builds a fully digital custom workflow where your investors only see the questions that matter to them. It's so simple that investors can now sign up for private funds in less than five minutes. Passthrough also makes it easy for fund managers and legal counsel to manage and track the entire process. To move into the next generation of digital fund closing, head over to passthrough.com forward slash Samir to learn more. Elizabeth, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for including me and good to see you, Samir. Before we get into the uh, the story of Scribble, let's go through your background and specifically what got you into venture in the first place? It all makes sense looking backwards, as I do like to say. So I actually grew up in uh, Sacramento or a little town outside of Sacramento. My mom was a second grade teacher. My dad was a marine biologist of all things. Uh, and I didn't even know Stanford existed. And so my foray out to the Valley was around the year 2000. And I came out for Stanford. I was undergrad in economics and a master's in engineering. Uh, the only reason I learned that the university was around, I ran a cross country meet there when I was a sophomore in high school. And I thought, this place seems pretty great. So I actually didn't know what venture capital was at all. And I was part of a program at Stanford called the Mayfield Fellows Program. And that's really what opened my eyes to the Valley. Being an econ major, I figured I was going to a consulting firm or an investment bank. And I started learning more about startups and the job in venture capital, what attorneys do when it relates to tech, and really just got this education where I got to see and work at two venture-backed startups and have mentors that were VCs. So after graduation, I was looking at either a big company or a little company, or I got this job posting for this venture capital associate role at Menlo Ventures. And I thought, this sounds pretty great. Sounds like a lot of my skill sets. Um, and who knows? And I, uh, it was one of those odd job times where, you know, I say with venture capital hiring, they can either hire you in six years, six months, six weeks, or six minutes. And I met all of the partners over a three-week span and had an offer letter and I thought, well, what am I, you know, what am I going to go shop everything around for? This sounds pretty great. So I was fortunate to be an associate at Menlo Ventures and really learn how to be a giant funnel there and and the game of venture capital. When I think about uh, Scribble Ventures, I always think about a notebook and somebody coming up with an idea that starts with the Scribble that turns into this great company. I'd love to dig into the origin story of, of Scribble. You mentioned Menlo, then you spent time at IVP. 
Andreessen Horowitz 137 Ventures. And then you also had a pit stop with Twitter when I think Twitter was less than 100 people and maybe 50 people. What were some of those things that you had as part of your learning journey in both the operating and venture roles that instructed that blank sheet of paper that turned into Scribble? So I've always been very split right brain, left brain. I've always, I love doing creative things. I love building. I say I keep a Lego set um, on my desk. Even now as an adult, I say, you know, busy hands, clear head. I've always been needing to do a little bit of both. I have a letterpress stationery business. I was a six-year Science Olympiad nerd, and my my event was the Rube Goldberg device. So I very much have been taking scribbles into, into reality for a long, long time. But after uh, Menlo Ventures, like you mentioned, I went to Institutional Venture Partners and learned the late stage game. There, we actually were fortunate to make an investment in Twitter in the early days. And and I started to get the note, the company from the business side, but then also from the people side. And I was still a little chicken to leave my job on this fancy Sandhill mahogany office. Um, so I, instead, I sent my husband over to Scribble when it was about 30 people. And I said, Kevin, go go interview here. This team needs somebody to start their, or the company needs somebody to start their analytics team. And so he went over and started that team back in early 09. I started hanging around. This was before Twitter had badges on the doors and I would take my laptop there. And I just realized everyone was having a lot more fun, it seemed like, than I was down in my fancy office where I was so important as a young VC. And so I was doing more work up there. And before I knew it, I was taking on work. I planned some team events. I was there at the company all hands. I got to know the people. And if you're taking up space, you're going to be put to work when it's about 35 people. And then when Dick Costello started as our COO, he hired me. Um, My title was Corp Dev. Nothing else, no manager, no lead, no anything. It was just Corp Dev. And that essentially encompassed all things that were corp dev, biz dev, biz ops, product marketing, actually something that I've always been very self-conscious of, to be really honest, that I'm a really fantastic generalist because I like finding a huge problem and then just like running to it, tackling it, hiring good people. And then what's the next hair on fire problem? Uh, So I did that over four years through hyper growth from 50 to 2,500 people. I've learned more there than than I think anything I will ever witness again. And such a pivotal, fun time prior to children and really like lifelong friends at a great time at Twitter. And from there, I went over to Andreessen Horowitz. And there I spent the four years building this, this function and a team that ultimately became 35 people called market development. So essentially connecting the Fortune 500, Global 2000 to our portfolio companies, end goal being business development relationships and ultimately revenue. And there, I feel like I was able to witness venture capital when the operations model was just being put on the map. Uh, you know, at the time, other firms hadn't done this. They were still sticking to the investing knitting of uh, venture capital. And it was neat to see what other services are really taken advantage of by founders. What are the most highly valued ones? And is it hires? Is it customers? Is it a playbook for X, Y, or Z? So really, really fun time. But what Andreessen did show to me is by being focused on operations, 
I really missed the investing motion. And I loved being able to work with early stage founders, not just on these building block ways, but also when you're coming into like tackling, you know, next round of funding or what do they need to hire a scale? Just a lot of the things that that come in when you're a part of that full journey. So I took one more hop as a managing director to 137 Ventures, uh, started by some folks I'd known from Stanford, and that's focused on structured secondaries. So really cool spot in the asset class. But again, when I picked my head up, I said, what do I love doing? What have I best been armed to do? And that was backing early stage founders and helping them in a variety of ways and wearing all sorts of my hats. Kevin, my husband, and I were fortunate to have angel invested through this time. So I'd been able to kind of do a test run of this, which the test run had ballooned into roughly 100 companies over less than a decade. And so at the start of COVID, uh, I said, what do I hate doing? And that's raising capital. Uh, what do I not think I want to do is go have institutional LPs as my real end of the day boss. But I said, really, what do I love doing and what what do I want to build into the future? And Scribble Ventures came into reality. For As far as the naming story, I don't think I could do anything, quote unquote, real until I had a good name. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I wrote Scribble down next to my bed. And then I woke up in the morning and uh, looked at the Google domains. And sure enough, it was it was there. And no one else had done anything in the venture landscape on that. And it was just so me. And so right brain, left brain, Rube Goldberg device champion to letterpress printing to investing in in tech companies uh, and great founders. So that is that is the story. Now, that's a great story and in such an amalgamation of different type of experiences that you've had that led into this and in certainly makes sense. And I, I think naming convention on VC firms is one of the hardest things to do because it seems like everything's already taken. But as you built, you know, started this Scribble Ventures, you know, I look at some of the experiences at Andreessen and thinking about this agency approach of how you help founders. And one thing that struck me as I was reading through some of the materials that you were nice enough to send me is that you view yourself as a hybrid between a super angel, which is what we call the first generation of micro VCs back in the 2006, 7, 8 timeframe, and an institutional investor. What does that actually mean to you? And why do you describe yourself like that? A few, few points on that. And why our founders look to us like that. And I think it really is an advantage in, in the landscape too. So the team at Scribble right now, we are lean and mean, but Kevin Wheel, my both husband and our operator in residence, is very much deeply, he, he loves operating and he's deeply plugged into that world. We don't expect to get all of his cycles as it relates to, to Scribble, but he just has unique insights by still being an operator. On Elise, the woman uh, that I've had a chance to get to know for over a decade and a partner at Scribble Ventures who'd spent early years at Dropbox and then at WTI learning the investing side and their own stage agnostic capacity, she was also an operator. So we bring this operator institutionally trained um, mindset to it, Uh, myself with Twitter and then the venture firms I've worked at as well. But the 
Super Angel is still nimble and able to draw on some of these unfair advantages that I think get almost worked out of traditional VCs if you are just practicing the art of venture for so long. So we can write this institutional size check, but we can take this nimble, bespoke approach to how we help our founders. And one of the things that we've done that we honestly didn't think was that unique, but it's just been such a, a value add for all of the parts of the, that make up the scribble table, we start a WhatsApp thread with all of our founding teams. And what I've now seen to map you know, over, over a few years is we are this bespoke skill set of help. And by seeing operationalized venture capital and then also seeing this, how it feels to be a nimble angel and you get a text of, can you hop on the phone and close this candidate? Or do you know anyone doing this where I need help with X? You can play that function. And by doing this with an institutional size check, access to our whole team at the right time when you want your question asked, that's the type of scale that a founder wants when they're just starting with this idea. They don't know what what productized operations do you need at that point? So as you think about your founders activating you for various things that relate to their business, and you mentioned a few things earlier, talent acquisition, help with understanding distribution, or at least getting customers, product. How do you operationalize that within the firm? Because what strikes me is Kevin, obviously a deep back operating background, you've had an operating background. And the toughest challenge for VC firms as their portfolios get larger is how do you provide that level of consistent operational support for those founders? Are there things that you do in particular that really help you scale your operation, which right now is a small group? This is not in Andreessen where you have 25, 30 people underneath you. I'd be curious in understanding for the people that are listening to this, how do you do it to really create scale within, within the business itself? And this is something that we've spent time looking at as a team. And, and I often talk about, you know, what superpowers are we putting around a founder's table and what's out and that will, that taps into our Scribble Ventures model as well, where it comes to being collaborative uh, and having built out this network advisor group that, that can help our companies as well. But looking at your superpowers, and I think this can help anybody with what you do. So really, what do you love doing? Why are you armed to, to do these things? And then where does that start to scale? So the hardest part is having a number of stakeholders, for example, and a, a lot of superpowers. But for one thing, you know, we've each uh, on the team at Scribble looked at what muscle do we flex when we're getting all of these questions from our, our founders. And for me, for example, now being in venture for more than 20 years, um, often that, that's talking around the fundraise readiness and this next round and you know who are we putting around in the, the portfolio or the fund and investment structure and plan for the next round of funding. So I spent a lot of time in round construction uh, I also really like getting to know my network in a deep way. So when somebody says, do you know X, Y, or Z, you have, you know, people stay top of mind. I love trying to run my life where you keep kind of a CRM in your head, where you, you know people more of just not than, oh, that's that person and their name and what they do, but what do they like to do? Could they be a fit in this space, in this sector? Would that founder like to work for them? 
Um, so hiring is something that I I help a lot on, as well as this customer and go-to-market strategy. But we all look at what do we do well and what superpower can we flex for our founders. And I think that's where each of us spike once we uh, get these questions hit at us. As you think about activating superpowers, are there certain things that are just harder to consistently provide founders at scale? And if there are, how do you think about operationalizing yourself internally to ensure that whatever that superpower is that's difficult typically or constrained, that you are still delivering it despite the growing portfolio size? Time is a very obvious point that you can't be spending as much time with all of your founders and stay top of mind. So you're helping all of them along, you know, at the same, the same focus, but you, what I have found, and I try to take a deep breath on a lot of this is things do spike at different times. So you likely will not have all of your companies fundraising for their next round. So if these, these more little sprints or being able to help, I've just realized that Often a 15 minute conversation can accomplish a lot more than like putting on a very structured meeting and planning for that. So this access point is what it doesn't exhaust me, but it it makes me feel like I can unlock our founders and help them along the way. But time and scale is very hard, especially as we you know stay up pretty robust, small, scrappy team, which um, we think there's a lot of value in that, too, because of our decision making speed. Uh, but that's definitely one that that's been been very hard uh, with a you know a fairly large portfolio. And and you mentioned decision making speed, which of course over the last year has become one of the paramount things every venture firm has had to uh, to execute on, given the the speed and uh, focus on these rounds getting done quickly. One of the challenges that I've found, and speaking of challenges, is that in the past you could spend time with a founder, getting to know them selling, you know, in this case, what the scribble value prop is. And in today's world, you don't have as much time to be able to do those things. Are there things that you found have benefited you and scribble in terms of still allowing you to get a piece of the cap table for the companies that you want to get into when you simply just don't have the time to get to know the founder and help them understand how valuable scribble would be on their cap table? What are some of the things that you found to be of most benefit in the early days? So lots of our introductions to founders come in through very, very warm connections. And that's not always the way to write a check or meet a founder. But often when it's almost double vetted, that timeline for getting to know a founder, you kind of half know them. So it's a coming in and a little bit, it's like a warmed up relationship already. Also, you know, people that know me, I, better for worse, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I really do, I feel like I, Zoom has been a fine medium for me to get to know people, not as great at all of going on a muddy hike with me in Portola Valley, but hey, uh, it works. So I show my world and very much me, you know, I, I always joke that my Instagram feed, I'm democratizing my misery from my five-year-old twins and my seven-year-old because my house is always a zoo and I don't sugarcoat anything these days. So being yourself has really 
been tried and true. Like I, there's been so many roles and jobs that I've had where it was tried to, my spirit was tried to be, be beaten out of me. And if you stick true to who you are, that's one thing. So you can get to know a founder uh, and make a decision fairly quickly. Also, when it comes to decision-making philosophy at Scribble, and something that Kevin and I personally put to test when we were just sparring around deals, if we happened to talk about them at dinner or whatever, when it was just our angel portfolio. With Scribble now, we don't need consensus on a deal. And I think that's also how we look like both a super angel and an institutional fund. You know, I say consensus doesn't see around corners. And when you're focused on pre-seed, seed, opportunistic A investing, you don't have all the proof points yet. And if you wait for consensus or asking 4,000 questions from both the internal scribble team and the founding team, you are going to lose a deal. Like at this stage, you're taking a leap of faith on the person about the timing in the market and that you're attacking something big. We don't have all the, the answers. So if one of the people at Scribble feels conviction, yes, we fight and spar about it as a team and make the question list of how can you go get to a, a better yes or no, and then take the initiative, run with it and like I like to learn from my Twitter time is be an owner. And that be an owner mentality means run with it. And consensus does not see around corners. Well, it's, it's a great thing that you're bringing up because I do believe that firms have different perspectives on this in terms of driving to consensus versus allowing individual partners to make conviction-based bets. Sometimes that's limited in terms of how many they can do. And Oftentimes, it becomes a really tough conversation to even have somebody with conviction enough to stand up to the rest of the partnership. Of course, with a smaller partnership, it's, it's easier. Is there anything that you do differently with those non-consensus bets in terms of check sizing or anything that it would be different from a consensus-based decision? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And something that we've pleased ourselves on internally, too, and learned from as we go. We wanted to make sure, and one of the things I learned early in my venture career is don't size a check based on conviction. And some of the crazy bets we've made, we were early, early investors in whatnot, inspired by the team, met them before COVID actually. And it's a it was a crazy idea. Um, the founders were phenomenal. They had this rare, weird background that maybe made you be able to see that this would actually work. Um, but we didn't know. And I look at that now, and this is the hindsight bias, of course, but had we sized our, this is pretty hokey, but I think it can work with our check size, we would not nearly be sitting in the position to have helped along the way as much, have a, like real conviction around the company like we do. and then access later to, we want to double down and support you over time and build our position. So it's something that we've really tried to police our, ourselves with. Also, part of the Scribble model is to build this position over time. So you're actually able to work with founders and you have that, that one bite initially. Uh, but really, when you see these tremendous people building companies into you know world-class opportunities, of being able to support more and being at, at the ready to do it. 
So breaking consensus obviously is is something that you need to do to in in many cases to invest in companies because not everyone agrees that a particular space or a particular founder or a particular solution is going to work. And we've seen some of the best companies in the world actually be turned down far more than they were accepted by you know potential investors. And sometimes some of those investors that I've talked to said, "Hey, we just couldn't get to consensus." at the firm level and we had to pass and we're kicking ourselves. On the other hand, the challenge with non-consensus is balancing between making sure people feel very comfortable with making those conviction bets, but also holding people accountable that their conviction-based individual when they go against, so let's say the rest of the partnership, is done with a lot of thought and consideration and it's not jamming deals that they want to do for themselves in terms of attribution. How do you think about that? Now, less so with Scribble, but what what have you seen work with some of the bigger firms and what could we take away as best practices? Uh, well, first of all, on that consensus point, no, the turndown reason is we just didn't have consensus. I really call bullshit to that, to be totally honest, and it just doesn't sit well with me. I have written hundreds and hundreds of turned down notes to people, great founders that are, you know, they're quitting their life to essentially do something that's larger than them. And it might not work. And likely, as far as stats go, it won't work. But I would push people on, is the fact that you didn't get to consensus really the reason you're turning a company down? I would have 4,000 potential other reasons why, you know, why you didn't get to consensus. You know, you're not convinced in in business timing. You're not convinced in that person, heaven forbid. You're not convinced that this is the go-to-market strategy that's ultimately going to be able to win in the early days and build traction. There are individual things of every business that might give you questions. We hold ourselves at Scribble to giving you those reasons. And it's not a let us rewrite your business plan, but I can't tell you how many thank you notes I've gotten from founders I have turned down where you give one or two specific reasons you're turning it down. And it's not just blaming it on the rest of the Scribble team that they didn't like it because I didn't like it. And I think it's it's like almost throwing your team as the scapegoat when you say that, oh, we just didn't get to consensus. So that's, that's one thing. And then the going against the partnership, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading and I love that, uh, that thought of, do you have the, the mental freedom and support to take this risk? If you do, you're armed to be able to go against the partnership. And it's not that you're this rogue rebel. It's that I have the intellectual freedom and trust that I can make this decision, I can stand up to it. If it's a huge flop, my partners aren't going to be pointing fingers at me because this is not an attribution-driven culture. And my number one core value for Scribble and my approach personally I just take is to build a company in a way that makes me proud. And it's not necessarily build a venture firm in a way that makes me proud, but build a company in a way that makes you proud. And I don't want finger pointing. I didn't want it at Twitter if you launched a product and it flopped. I don't want it at Scribble. None of us do. If that investment, it's a total write-off, that's part of the art of venture. And it means you're, you know, you have, you got to swing for, for some other end of the spectrum as well. 
So I really think uh, you just need to have this mental mental freedom and you need to work and build toward that as the team and the culture grow wherever you're working. Uh, and then the, yeah, that attribution note you made, I just think I have been now in enough firms where some of my worth or self-worth, mental worth, anything was tied to attribution. And I have to admit that I've never done my best work when it was attribution driven. I need to be driven by team. I need to be driven by spirit and culture of the firm and what we're doing and big mission and what we're really ultimately set out to, to tackle. And I do feel that as firms get larger and larger, this issue tends to pop up more as partnerships, you know, grow and expand, not in terms of just numbers, but, you know, with diversity of backgrounds and bringing on new people to existing partnerships. And it does become more of a challenge over time to have a culture where you can have a single individual make a conviction-based investment and not have the entire partnership point fingers if it goes wrong. Are there things from a cultural standpoint that you've seen either work or not work in terms of promoting this conviction-based investment versus everybody focusing on their own attribution and being afraid that if things go wrong, I'm going to be voted off the island? Well, one we're even testing and putting to practice right now, I have a, a great intern from Stanford that's working at Scribble, and she is, you know, a decade maybe two decades now that I look at myself, um, younger. And some of her decisions, access, and diligence, I couldn't do right now. And I love that this like diversity of thought also can really make an investment decision better. But then on how do you, how do you really promote this and then stay nimble? I think it, again, takes to trusting your team that we are all bought in enough to the success and really making scribble win ultimately that you are willing to take this nimble jump in and I might throw on Elise a number of questions as she's talking to some company. She can take them or leave them, but let's arm her with all of our diversity of thought so she can go drill into specific areas and then ultimately have have the data points to make make a bet. And I think the more that you trust that your team has good intentions, your team's not necessarily pushing for a deal because of attribution, and that we're ultimately trying to drive to the best scribble end of the day result for both our, our portfolio, our LPs, our founders, and making that all work. I mean, that's where we're like eye on the prize. Yeah, it's very much a team sport and, you know, within a very aligned vision, of course driving the best returns and the best experience for all your constituents, which you brought up your LPs. I, I remember earlier in this conversation, you mentioned loving working with the entrepreneurs, helping them along their journeys, but maybe not loving the fundraising part of it, which is an absolute necessary component of running a firm. You do need to raise capital. And I know ultimately with Scribble One, now we can talk about it since it's finished, you were oversubscribed ultimately. But tell us a little bit about how you approach that fundraise, because it is a challenging, opaque, very difficult to understand because you have the institutional investors, you have the non-institutional investors. And oftentimes, the biggest challenge is where do I start and how do I construct a cogent fundraising strategy to give me the best opportunity to close? And in a time frame that doesn't require me to spend the next two years of my life 
just on the road talking to LP. So tell us a little bit about your first fundraise. Oh, it's, it is looking, uh, yes, looking backwards always fun. Well, I hated selling Girl Scout cookies when I was a little kid. So I hated asking anybody for money. I hated the idea of asking anyone for money. Like I wanted to work for it. Like my, I was the first knock on Noah's bagels door when I got my work permit. So I loved working and earning my 475 an hour, which back then that's really what I made. But I was terrified of raising a fund. I, I think that's part of the reason I am such an independent spirit. I think it took me this long to raise scribble because um, as far as career and like taking the leap into doing my own thing, because that fundraising piece was always this thing I didn't know if I'd ever want to take because I hated selling Girl Scout cookies. So I lived my entire life where I feel like I've kind of put chips into other people's baskets and I feel more comfortable as a person doing that. I don't like asking for things, for help, for, I mean, I know we all need to do it more. And I just felt better when I was boosting you versus needing anything. And when I, uh, when Scribble started, so it was, uh, it was right around the COVID time. So April is when I actually came up with, with the Scribble name. And I'd made a bet with a friend that maybe I would raise five or $10 million because I hated raising capital. And then the first close, we very fortunate and relatively fast was uh, roughly 25 and then ended up Scribble one. We closed it. We rejiggered our plan for the model and closed it $50 million. But I took a pretty methodical approach to what stakeholders within the LP set do we want around our table. And there were so many great people in our network that were like us and had their start in in venture being, you know, maybe a super angel or because they're just have some cool background and maybe they worked at a tech company. Maybe they're an exec of one currently. Maybe they just really have interest in both things. So part of our pool of LPs was designed to be these uh, more individual people that were still operating, but wanted, wanted to help, wanted to be texted by a founder. If we were looking at an interesting type of deal that was up there, alley. Um, so part of that was there. And then we, of course, were into the more small family offices, you know, larger execs and, and uh, you know, other people in and out of the valley that had had some connection to this. And then we ultimately wanted to round out with some institutional limited partners as well. And I think that makes this really holistic, unique set where everybody has uh, their own motives for being within an early stage uh, venture fund and part of the asset class. And they're willing to flex different skills and talents as well. And so Scribble can ultimately be advantaged by that. So that's been really fun. Um, the other thing I don't think I realized setting out to raise capital, because I'd worked at other venture firms that this role, you know, yes, I met some of our LPs along the way and had LP meetings, but I didn't have as that specific one-to-one -one relationship. LPs are just real people too. And now that I've gotten to slowly know more of mine and meet them in person, because I remind you Scribble One Fundraise was $50 million entirely on Zoom over the summer of COVID where everyone wanted to say no. So I did, I did have to, you know, kiss a bunch of frogs too. But we are so fortunate to, to close that out. But now I'm starting to meet our LP base in person. And 
they're just normal people. I had a great lunch with one last Friday. I, you know, seeing one and meeting his kids this weekend. And these are the people you want to start to put around your table. And I realize now, looking back at the other institutional firms I've worked at in venture, those relationships can become uh, friendly as well, in, in, in addition to just being capital. If we think about your fundraise, which, of course, it's amazing raising the entire fund on Zoom when two years ago, we, that would have never even been, you know, point of consideration or belief. And to be able to get to a target and beyond that target of 50 million, how much of the LP base was institutional versus non-institutional being the high net worth individuals, the family offices? Well, very split. I actually haven't looked at what exact percentages would be by number of LPs and by by dollar amounts. But you do have to do a good balance because you also don't want to be chasing, you know, too many $50 checks along the way. So we did a great job of rounding that out. But I think that's part of our secret too. So I can't give you my whole playbook. Without getting into every nitty gritty part of the playbook, as you look at institutional investors versus non-institutional is there anything that you would make as the major distinction in terms of pitching to one group versus, you know, another group? Definitely. And uh, one thing that I do think we all need to keep in mind, we were pitching and we do pitch include LPs in our portfolio that are looking and looking at venture and this part of early stage venture as taking a long multi-year approach to the relationship and that that's something that also manager new managers especially should be mindful of when you have so many um say wealthy friends and individuals that have the ability to write checks you want to make sure you're balancing the fund with institutional lps that are really building their own personal portfolio too and this is a certain part of the bucket within the asset class and the, the allocation that they're investing toward so it's something we really wanted to be mindful of right now, especially with Scribble One, you know, you, we have about a decade of angel portfolio to look back on as, you know, I, I joke that I could have called this Scribble Five if I'd been really gutsy, but there's only so much you can drill into when it's a an early stage fund and you really are betting on us and the Scribble team and the judgment and investments that we've made to date. And then what network and access do you have and what secret do you hold that is going to help you differentiate? And so those are those are parts that everyone, I believe, needs to know. You know, I do think where uh, institutional LPs start drilling down further in, into fund cycles, you know, besides, okay, references, because it's not just the executive that knows knows us well. Uh, drilling into that, how are our networks unique, uh, but really getting conviction that the model is the right right part of the model for their asset allocation. So I think you just have to start realizing that you're going to check a lot more boxes and probably have a lot more conversations when you're going more toward the the institutional larger limited partner bucket. I think that's right. And, and if you look at most of the institutional investors that are investing in a first-time fund, it's usually with the belief and understanding and conviction that this is going to be a multi-fund investment where the number of dollars in fund one is a small starting point, 
which will grow as the fund manager goes to fund two, fund three, and in some cases, even with co-investments through some of the SPVs. So I want to end with our final question, because, and I think this one is going to be particularly interesting because you've had all these great experiences ranging from, you know, incredible places like Twitter and Andreessen. And as you've gone through your career, I'd be curious on what was the most impactful piece of investing advice that you've ever received and how does that now inform how you make decisions or how you invest today? Okay, a few things. I'm going to add three things. Three things. We'll take three. One, and I learned this. I don't know if I can name names, but I will name names. Why not? A lot of people do venture in their own own ways. And a lot of people think it's such an individual, individual contributor role. And, you know, and I think conversations with Finn Barnes, especially hammering on venture is a team sport really gave me the mental flexibility to think I can do this in that way. And yes, we're all ICs a bit on the venture landscape, but play this like a team sport. It's only going to make us better. We do that now with our collaborative model too. And it's so much more true to me. So kind of knowing that I can be very independent like I am, but also know that this is a team sport. We're tackling this. We're better with a group. We can only, you know, build more. That's something that that really I've taken to heart. And then uh, one of my favorite people and lesser known VCs in the Valley, Kevin Compton, uh, who's been around and by my side for quite some time. I had the fortunate chance of working for he and his group while I was still at Stanford, actually. But he always hammered on me, uh, and not hammered necessarily, because that's not his style, but family first. And I feel allowed to morph my life and work all into one. And that's always been me. But knowing that I can be a, a mediocre, decent, fun mom, also have LPs know what's going on in my life, also have great founders around my kitchen table for dinner, if that's the best way to get to know them and and the mo- most timely. So just letting all of these pieces merge together, make such a holistic and robust life. And I loved seeing that Kevin Compton could be a phenomenal investor and also show other sides of him. And then I would be remiss if I didn't say this advice from my mom. So this that's the person, but the most impactful thing she didn't tell me, but showed me when I was all growing up before even kindergarten, she had her one non-negotiable every single day. And she left for the swimming pool at 4.15 in the morning to swim masters every day. And then she took me to school. I have my non-negotiable every single morning as well. I run or swim. My kids know that mommy needs to get her wiggles out or it's never a good day in the wheel household. Uh, and I, no matter if it's a sporting thing you like to do, or if it's something that is you've put into practice in your day of being your non-negotiable, we all work so hard and around the clock these days that if you have that, you're not going to resent the other work you do and you'll only do it better and harder. Those are probably the team sport family is allowed to merge into all we do and uh, yeah, make time for your non-negotiable. I love it. And these are wise words from all of the people, including uh, your dear mother. But this has been great. This has been a lot of fun, Elizabeth. 
I'm excited about what you, Kevin, and Annalise are building. Look forward to uh, to charting the growth with you. And thanks again for uh, being on with us today. Thanks for including me and uh, looking forward to listening to more of your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Elizabeth. To learn more about her or Scribble Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.